0: But in our test food study, we found that if we could just increase the caloric density and make sure that the essential amino acids were there in higher concentrations, that if they ate less food, they still got adequate quantity of calories and they got all the essential amino acids that they needed to maintain their protein needs and and muscle mass. So we actually saw a difference then, um, Even though a commercial food might look like it's adequate for the younger adult cat that's eating a lot, it might not look as good for the older cat that's finicky and having trouble maintaining uh, lean body mass.
1: A whole new era of communication in the pet food industry is coming. Now you have the brightest minds in the global pet food industry right in your pocket. And what's best, you can listen to all of them while driving, traveling, or running errands. It's never been this good, and it's never been this simple. Welcome to the Pet Food Science Podcast Show, a weekly podcast where you'll find cutting-edge insights and all that's working in the pet food industry. Well, welcome, everyone, to the Pet Food Science Podcast. Uh, I'm your host this time, Dennis Jewell, and we're going to discuss... Current research from around the world, as you know, uh, we are going to apply that to innovation in pet products and in the pet food industry. Uh, today, we have the distinct pleasure of speaking with Dr. Gene Hall, Oregon State University. And Dr. Hall and I have worked together uh, many years, so it's a great pleasure for me to be able to have this uh, this time and interaction. Uh, Dr Hall could you tell us a little bit about your background how you got to where you are today and and um, maybe what your areas of research pet food oriented research uh, is
0: yeah I, I can so thank you for that kind uh of introduction um I am at Oregon State University I started and ended here um I went to vet school at Washington State University and then interned um at Angel Memorial Animal Hospital in Boston. And then came back to Colorado State University and did uh, my PhD in residency. So I'm now board certified in Amer- by the American College of the Veterinary Internal Medicine in small animal medicine. But after my residency, I did a postdoc at the Oregon Health Sciences University in Portland, Oregon. And it was in lipid metabolism and nutrition. So that's probably where my nutrition interest specifically started. And then I took a position at Oregon State University and there just recently at that time started uh, College of Veterinary Medicine. I was the only small animal internist there in the beginning. And was looking for research projects to get started with in my area of interest, which was nutrition and lipid metabolism. And through some connections, that's how, Dennis, you and I came to have our first study. And early on, we were mostly interested in fatty acids. And in particular, the N-3 fatty acids or the omega-3 fatty acids from fish oil and how they might impact the pet health. Uh, we were interested in the immune system and, and aging and how we could help the pets uh, in, in those two aspects. And you were kind, but we've been working together now for almost 30 years, or maybe it has been 30 years. I don't our, want to count. <laughs> our studies have kind of evolved. We started out with fatty acids. But we've also then moved towards biomarkers and uh, understanding how uh, pet health is affected um, by monitoring new biomarkers. We used uh, SDMA, which is symmetric dimethyl arginine, a big word for a little molecule that is filtered by the kidneys. And if that molecule does not get filtered and hangs up in the blood, its concentrations increase If that indicates that there is a problem with kidney health. So we spent some time working with that molecule and looking at some pets and diets and how they impacted that molecule. So kidney health has been uh, central to both our dog and cat nutrition projects. But then I think we kind of started moving into personalized nutrition a little bit, looking at how the genetics Of individual animals and uh, also the diet of individual pet foods um, that clients were feeding their pets might impact things more specific like uh, the metabolome which are the metabolites that are floating around in the blood over the microorganisms in the gut the microbiome and we can even look at the feces to find how those metabolites are being affected so that's kind of where we are right now is looking at the effect of various foods um, on uh, what I would call biochemical pathways or molecular pathways using molecular means to kind of prove that the diets that we're feeding are having some changes that benefit the pet's health.
1: Yeah. So we're looking for optimum health. And, you know, the thing that I, have been noticing and speaking about as we've walked through these podcasts is is the idea that you know we keep getting more and more information as you know when we started our research together we would have never thought about doing the metabolomics we would have never thought about doing the microbiota and suddenly now you know those windows open up and we know we know a lot more than we could have in the past not that that old work has been set aside it's foundational but we know more and we know deeper now, so so I wonder, you know, maybe you've been talking, uh, part of the lecture, lecture circuit, if you will. I say with a smile, um, but I know you've been giving some recent talks and sort of you know, this idea of optimum nutrition and health, uh, you know, for for the healthy pets a, as we've looked at, and then as as maybe some old age uh, diseases kick into them. It was kind of an interesting area, maybe we could we could talk about that today what what do you think
0: yeah that's that sounds good. Uh, a lot of our studies that we started out with were just in adult pets, and we've moved to older adult pets that were healthy and we've looked at kidney disease pets, so uh kind of the spectrum and both cats and dogs, I think our interest more recently is kind of focused on the cat, but yeah. That's a great area.
1: Well, let's talk about it. What do you think if you would look at it and say, you know, I, I'm I'm interested in this area. What what maybe are some things to think about? Some things to say. Well, uh-huh. yeah, I ought to, I ought to have that top of mind. Maybe both as a as a pet owner and maybe as a a research scientist interested in this area. What would you advise?
0: Well, some things that come to mind is that we know as the pet ages, there are changes in, in us too. But uh, uh, for example, we lose lean body mass and uh, we call that sarcopenia. Uh, Our muscles get lesser in volume and lesser in strength. And so maintaining lean body mass is important. um, That links to morbidity and actually the length of lifespan. So one of the areas we look at is how can we maintain circulating protein levels and lean body mass or muscle mass in our pets
1: well let's talk about that for a minute because you know i i'm very interested in that article you were first author on where actually the the pets were given the same amount of protein but there was a protein quality difference that really made a difference then on this outcome of the sarcopenia that you are talking about can should, should we just you know we'll yeah do that's, that a, a little bit? that's a
0: great one so With that background, we know that cats are going to have a problem as they get older uh, in maintaining their lean body mass. We also know that cats get more finicky in what they eat as they get older. So knowing that overall they may eat less, it's really important that you get high quality protein in front of them in the form of pet foods so that they will, if they eat less, still get adequate amounts of the essential amino acids. And in that study that you're referring to, our control food, which was a food that was out there on the market and recommended for older pets, and in specifically pets with kidney disease, met all of the requirements, assuming that the cat ate as much as it was supposed to. But in our test food study, we found that if we could just increase the caloric density and make sure that the essential amino acids were there in higher concentrations, that if they ate less food, they still got adequate quantity of calories and they got all the essential amino acids that they needed to maintain their protein needs and and muscle mass. So we actually saw a difference then, um, even though a commercial food might look like it's adequate for the younger adult cat that's eating a lot, it might not look as good for the older cat that's finicky and having trouble maintaining uh lean body mass.
1: Now that's that's great insight. Because I do think, you know, as as our pets age, there's there's a continual need to update kind of, you know, what the what the young pet needs. I I'm just thinking of my son's puppy who obviously burns a lot of calories uh-huh. and is uh is eating a lot of food and staying very lean, uh, that's quite different, isn't it, than uh, the older pets we're talking about, maybe that have some disease instance going on and have some inappetence and sarcopenia being the result.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, The other thing is that we also know that as pets age, the microbiota, or I like to call them the bugs, in the intestinal tract (laughs) uh, change with aging. And so those... Uh, bugs or the microbiome in the intestinal tract are very important in that they take ingredients that are fed to the pets that don't get absorbed either by the host which is the pet or by the bugs themselves for their own needs and they ferment them and they can make products that are not so good for the host. Some of them get absorbed and they have detrimental impact particularly on the kidney. So uh, the other thing that we can look at as pets get older and we think about their nutrition is we want to maintain high quality ingredients um, that are easily digested, but we don't want to have a lot of extra protein left over for fermentation in the colon so that some of these negatively um, affecting, we call them postbiotics that get absorbed, have a, have a negative impact
1: well it's not fascinating i i often you know cycle back and and just to sort of smile uh 1978 was my first uh co-authored article looking at a bypass nutrients journal of animal science uh, where i'm still an animal science member but we had no idea of postbiotics at the time we had no idea we all we could measure was stuff we could grow in culture and that was so limited And now in the research you're talking about, you know, hundreds of species, hundreds of metabolites, Uh, it's just a fantastically broader picture,
0: which I'm very excited about. Yeah. So that's a really good point in that uh, the GI microbiome is vast, and it was difficult to study for a long time because they're either facultative or strict anaerobes, which means You can't grow them in our normal culture conditions. They have to be in an oxygen-poor environment. So not a lot of studies actually were able to look at those bacteria. And they simply died. Yeah. Yeah. And and they have such an important role that's just only now being discovered because of some of the more molecular techniques that have evolved that we're able to uh, evaluate that microbiome population. And lots of diseases in in pets as well as in humans are being um, uncovered the links between the bacteria that are in the intestinal tract and how the response or the outcome of some of those systemic diseases are being influenced. Like, for example, diabetes. In our case, we're looking at chronic kidney disease. But other organ systems besides the gut are being influenced by those, I call them the bugs that are in the GI tract. Um, that are producing these substances, we call them postbiotics. Um, That term kind of means the products that are made by the fermentation product process that then get absorbed. So, um, yeah, it's fascinating to think that something going on in the gut may be affecting a a systemic um, process.
1: And, And isn't it interesting? We always used to think, I am feeding for the pet. But now what you're talking about is you're feeding for the pet through the interaction that happens with the gut microbiota. Mm-hmm. Really the pet's taking much of what it wants right off the top in the small intestine. But a whole bunch of what's happening with the pet is through these uh, microbiotic products. So tell us, more. like you just you just gave a talk, you know, and so you kinda I know you have this kind of top of mind on this area. But but could you summarize that for us? What what did you do what were you saying to those really veterinary internal uh, experts on the, on this area.
0: Yeah, the, I, I just gave a talk for the American College of Veterinary and Internal Medicine on how the food ingredients that we feed cats, if my talk was focused on cats, influence the microorganisms or the microbiome, as we call it, in the intestine and then results in these postbiotics or products that they produce that get absorbed and how that affects kidney health. So yeah, there were some interesting studies that were summarized in that talk. Some of them just in healthy cats. We, we know, for example, that if you feed very high levels of protein, like 50% protein as fed, that it's not always a good thing. Even though we think as cats get older, they need more protein, their muscle mass is diminishing. That extra protein that the host didn't utilize and that the bugs didn't use for their own growth and metabolic needs gets fermented in the colon and those products that are made then that get absorbed by the by the intestine circulate around and they can have detrimental effects so there's an optimum amount of protein and we're working to figure out what that is but it's certainly not more protein is better
1: not so, always right yeah, yeah.
0: Well, that was one key fact that um that we uh, that i reported in that study the other one um, is that you can add certain food ingredients, for example, betaine, which helped me out, Dennis. I think that comes from
1: beets. Mm-hmm. Well, it, it's a uh, it's tri- right? So it's it it is found naturally and in, in and also in beets, but found naturally in other places. But it's a it's a major uh, a major uh, small molecule that all of us you know have in our in our bodies as well as our pets. So we can supplement. it.
0: Who would think of adding betaine to pet foods? Except Dennis, <laughs> would be I under- understand good. too. <laughs> <laughs> so we did look at the effects of betaine on um, we call it one-carbon metabolism because betaine donates a methyl group, and it ends up traveling around in a transmethylation cycle and and supplying methyl groups that some really important molecules that uh, are involved in antioxidant reactions, for example, they they need that extra methyl group to make enough of those molecules. And um, by preventing betaine in the food, that has made a big difference in the health of these cats with chronic kidney disease. So to me, that was a really interesting finding. Uh, Another ingredient, so again, we're thinking about the food ingredients and how they impact the pet health. Is fiber. Now we know cats are obligate carnivores. That means they require meat in their diet, but they also require fiber to get down to the level of the colon. It's not sometimes easily absorbed in the small intestine by the microbiome. So that fiber gets all the way down into the colon and it gets made into postbiotics or smaller molecules that have a really different effect depending upon whether you're a healthy cat or whether you're a cat with renal disease.
1: Well, I was just gonna talk about that because, you know, don't you sort of wish as a nutritionist that you could say, look, here's an ideal food. All pets ought to eat it, you know, okay, you need a cat food and a dog food. But but it's so much more than that, isn't it?
0: It's and complicated. Yeah, it's very complicated. And it almost seems like the more you learn, okay, my perfect can of pet food, either dog or cat food, and certainly they're not the same for dogs and cats. Cats are not small dogs. So we're optimizing food for the individual species. Um, so it's, it's interesting that we, we learn a little bit of like, oh, okay, protein. We don't want to put too much in, but we want high quality, highly digestible protein. We want to have it calorically dense. Let's put a little betaine in and let's think about fiber. And we think we get pretty near what is optimal for the cat and then along comes another study and it's like, oh, maybe we need to think about the amount of fish oil or the amount of some fruits and vegetables that lend um, antioxidant ability or L-carnitine. There, there's a lot of things that... uh just keep impacting this perfect can or sack of cat food.
1: Isn't it interesting? And and the funny thing for us, I think, is as we have gone through this. I mean, at one time, I, I would always smile. You know, I lived in Kansas, and we're in the middle of corn and wheat fields, and my cat would go out hunting, and and people, as I would say what you're saying, they'd say, uh, when your cat goes out in that." cornfield is it hunting corn? You know, because we have we have now knowledge that those like who really would think that that these phytochemicals which are found high in in many things like vegetables like corn um, are suddenly something of a benefit to a cat. I mean, it just it, it's almost intuitively a contrast. What, what do you think about that?
0: Well. I think what catches me the most is that a lot of the things that we're talking about in pet food are also important in human food. Yes. I keep thinking, oh, man, if I need to put this kind of fiber in the pet food. Now, again, cats are not small humans, but it makes me more aware of the choices or the benefits of certain food groups or ingredients in human food as well. Sure. So, yeah, there is uh, just... a a wealth of information. And the more we learn, the more I'm thinking we're headed towards a target, which is a personalized diet for each species and for each disease state and for all ages. Now, I don't know how many people are going to be able to think about that or utilize that kind of a food. But if you really want to optimize pet foods and pet health, I think you can move in that direction, kind
1: of, kind of the goal. and so so the steps you know maybe that we're traveling now as you start thinking about life stage and lifestyle. so there's a there's definitely an effect with aging, as you've been talking about and and a tremendous effect for, you know energy consumption, for example, of a very active pet versus a very cock potato pet. Um, so all of those things turn into what is that optimum for? For the individual pet in front of us, right? So we're all trying to to meet that need, and and that's fascinating. What else? What else do you see? And sort of as you do the broad look and and think about areas of pet nutrition, what what are you thinking about?
0: Well, certainly, I, one of the things that catches me is that there's a lot of information that we know that currently isn't reaching the population of pet owners that we choose to serve. So for example, in my study that I just gave, um, we had a lot of good information about ingredients that would be beneficial for pets with chronic kidney disease. And that's really the only thing we have to offer for cats with chronic kidney disease as a benefit to extend the life, the quality of life is nutrition. And yet 60% of the cats that have kidney disease are not eating any therapeutic renal food. So, And that was based on about four studies where they looked at where food intake or food source was reported. Uh, the cats just weren't on a diet specifically designed for, for kidney disease. So I think there's a huge opportunity for us to educate the general public on the benefits of feeding specific foods or specific food ingredients to help their pets when they have an underlying disease. I don't think you can get that information from the pet food sack or the can of pet food. I think it's important that we do podcasts and educate people on what they should be looking for.
1: Thank you. Let, let's dive that way a little bit um, because, you know, I would love to be able to walk through a pet food store and look at a bag. And say, I can see from this bag, this is a really good food. Now I am I'm, I'm an expert. I, I think I know more about those bags than, than many do, but you still can't tell. No. It's surprising. And and so we need a more educated and like say maybe the podcast, but but more education is good in this area.
0: Yeah, and I think it's really important that people trust the pet food companies that are doing the research to support the claims in their food. Not just, I call it dry labbing when you say, oh, this should work because blah, 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 but actually fed the food to a population of animals with that disease and showed the results in peer-reviewed publications. I think that's just critical that um, we have evidence to back up the claims that are being made.
1: No, that's that's really good thoughts, Gene. Let's, let's come back to some of the research you've been uh, the first author on in the older pet. Because in that population, it sort of was surprising to see, you know, there were some underlying, maybe undiagnosed health problems that in fact, that that, that food really imparted a value when, when the pets ate it. Um, you know what I'm thinking about, those are the works where you saw some change in, in lean body mass. You saw some change again in these health, health indicators that you've been talking about, There's, I know we haven't prepared this talk, so maybe maybe that's uh, that that's uh, another topic. But
0: I'm thinking you might be going in the direction of um, we've done some work with kidney stones, and we know that having kidney stones shortens the lifespan of cats by about three years. And we've done a lot of work actually early on with fatty acids, looking at their effects on the immune system. But more recently, we've done some work looking at the effects of the fat or the type of fat or fish oil in the diet and how that might affect the occurrence or the um, incidence of, of of stones or kidney stones in the cat. And if we could maybe get rid of those, it might lengthen the life. So, yeah, are there measurable impacts of what we feed on diseases or longevity is kind of the big one. Um, But just the quality of life I think is important too. We've done some studies with client-owned pets where we show that kidney disease progressed faster if the owners had their choice of foods and whatever food that might be versus if we put them on foods that were specifically designed for aging animals and pets with underlying kidney disease. So yeah, I think
1: those were the ones. Those were the ones I was thinking about because I was, remember those studies and exclusion criteria were things like creatinine that said, "Okay, these pets appear to be, uh, you know, healthy and and normal." But then when you added that new marker you spoke of, the SDMA, suddenly you realized, "Oh, there's a subpopulation here." It was a large study, so you had a big enough group to have a an actual uh, analytical evaluation of those. And when you looked at that subpopulation of, you know, reasonably healthy, but declining renal function, you just saw a benefit. And that was fascinating to me.
0: Yeah, maybe we should back up and speak a little to that uh, new biomarker. It's a uh, symmetric dimethyl arginine. It's just a little breakdown marker from uh, DNA. or It, it actually coats the DNA and then when that turns over, these proteins that get released, uh or amino acids, um and yeah, yeah. Yeah, they're waste products and they get filtered through the kidney. And so this little molecule could be used to assess kidney function. And the the beauty of it was that it it went up and they go up when the kidneys aren't filtering them out. It went up earlier so you could detect kidney disease sooner than what we normally do in cats, and it was more sensitive. So not only did it rise earlier, we found the cats quicker. Uh, It was a more sensitive indicator of kidney dysfunction. So we were able to start those cats on a renal protective food sooner than what we would have been with the biomarkers that had been traditionally used. So this biomarker allowed us to, yeah, look at owner's Cats in a across the United States study that uh, they thought were perfectly healthy, but we had the information to know that they had early kidney disease. And we put them on different foods. We either let them continue eating the food that they were eating, or we gave them a food that was designed to protect against uh, progressive kidney disease. And we found from that study that we did have improvements even though they thought their cats were doing well at least biochemically we showed that they were better off with the test yeah
1: so i guess that's that is what i'm thinking about that idea that with the new methods you're talking about the foods can actually be tuned to solve a problem that maybe 20 years ago we wouldn't have even been able to know it exists it did exist the the problem was there but it hadn't progressed to a way where the tools at the time would show it existed so it's it's a fascinating opportunity for a nutritionist because i think you know the uh, when do you think about the standard of you know maybe kidneys as they continue to decline there can't be much help versus what you showed as in that studies at least with that marker uh, i believe it was in cats that it actually improved with that food that was designed you know, to aid in the management of 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 aging, if you will, or renal disease. Yeah.
0: Well, I think we're kind of mm, accustomed to think that our cures are gonna come in a bottle, a bottle of antibiotics, a bottle of non anti-inflammatories, uh, pills, and things that we give to the pet versus I think what we're showing is that nutrition is more important Uh, that we choose the right food ingredients, and that they can have major impacts on the kidney health. Uh, Like I said, 60% of people don't even have their cats with a known kidney disease on a kidney diet. And in our study, uh, we now know you can detect that kidney disease earlier, so why not start them on something um, that we have evidence to say will be a benefit to them long term it will lower the the biomarkers that say oh the kitties aren't functioning well um, long term ho- hopefully that will lengthen the lifespan or slow the progression of their kidney disease yeah, yeah i think that's really valuable
1: i think i think so as well it, it's part of the the health maintenance of, of all of our aging pets that so many of these things can be um you know, I want to say severely so reduced by proper nutrition. Um, obviously, we all still age, right? I look in the mirror. I, but
0: I think it's inevitable that we're all eventually going to succumb to our underlying organ system failures. But maybe we can prolong when that happens.
1: And and prolong. You had talked about quality of life, such an important thing for for us as individuals and for our pets. That you know, proper nutrition. Uh, is really a, a tremendous aid in, in enhancing quality of life through the aging process. So
0: absolutely. Well
1: maybe that that's a good place to kind of wrap it up, Gene. I sure have enjoyed uh talking with you. Uh maybe we can come back and do some deeper dives into some of the other things. Today we've we've covered uh this this area of renal uh with area you've published a lot in, but certainly not the only one. So I would enjoy that. I, I have a couple questions for you. Just maybe we'll we'll insert them if we get a chance. One thing I always like to ask is, you know, you've worked with a lot of teams. You've worked with a lot of people. What do you look at as something that's really uh, going to be a good indicator of success on that team for your potential team uh, associate?
0: Potential success, I, I think a lot of it has to do with um, communication, follow-through, uh, willingness to see a project through to completion. I'm thinking of performing the statistics, interpreting uh, so that we understand what they're saying, and then getting it out their efforts forward and see the project through to completion.
1: Yeah, that, that's great, Gene. Thank you. You know, do you you've taught a lot. I think more physiology than direct nutrition, but nutrition is built on physiology. Um, do you have any texts that you really like or recommend uh, for someone who who might be really interested, maybe a grad student or even just a a pet owner that might say, "Oh, there's here's a text that Dr. Hall thought was great." Any any well, oh, interesting.
0: Well, for physiology, uh, certainly I'm teaching veterinary physiology, so I have uh, our basic physiology textbook. I can't recall the author of that right offhand. Nutrition-wise textbooks, I usually use peer-reviewed literature and do literature searches for the references or the studies that I'm interested in. But I'm going to look up on my shelf and say that the small animal clinical nutrition handbook, although it's more than a handbook, uh, by Hand and Thatcher and Remillard and Routabush and Novartney. I hope those are the most recent authors uh, on that textbook. It's just an excellent source for just a general overview of nutrition. You probably are familiar with that book and maybe if I've not referenced it referenced it quite correctly, you can help me out with that. No,
1: no that's good. That's a good text. I like it as well. So, thank you. Um, I think again. Thank you for your time. It's been a fascinating conversation. I've so enjoyed talking with you about it. Um, let's 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 try and do it again another let's time. Let's
0: keep it going. Okay. Yep. Okay. Great. Thank you. Thank you.